will naturally come about. Now, we talk about having the fruit of the Spirit, and many of us are trying to strive so hard in our flesh to obtain the fruit of the Spirit. But let's say this out loud, and let's think about this for a moment, just using basic logic and reason. Can the flesh produce the fruit of the Spirit? No. The flesh can produce fruit, but only the fruit of the flesh, right? Let's think about it this way, if that doesn't quite make sense for you. Can an apple tree grow oranges? No, uh-uh. No, it, it can't. Not, not that I've heard of. I don't know what science can do out there, but if it's growing oranges, it's an orange tree. Right? Can an orange tree grow apples? I don't think so. Right? We've got to understand here that the flesh will only produce the flesh. It is the Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit. Now let me ask you, what were you given the moment that you trusted Christ? You were given His Holy Spirit has sealed us unto the day of redemption, that empowers us, enables us, equips us, teaches us, encourages us, convicts us, that prepares us and makes us fit for the service of God. So if we have been given God's Holy Spirit, then what do you think would be most natural to the believer? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit there abides and should be there because where the Spirit is, He is working. Where the Holy Spirit is, He is consecrating the believer separating us from the world and separating us unto God through the Word of God. And what we see as we look today is that there's going to be some things in verses 9 and 10 that he commends the church for there at Thessalonica. And he tells them, you've got these things going on. These are good things. He's already told them about them in chapter 3 already. But he's going to say a very specific phrase that this is already taught to you by God. It should already be there. There are some things in the life of the Christian that should already be there. And if they're missing, there is a deep issue there that must be addressed. Let's read verses 9 through 12 this morning just to help us out a little bit. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do, uh, you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. That you study to be quiet, to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that ye may ha have lack of nothing. Now remember at the end of chapter 3, he said that even though you've got some good things going on, there's still some lack. Now we've talked about this the past few weeks as we've looked at here at 1 Thessalonians 4. That we see that many of us have matured as Christians as we ought to. The longer you're a Christian, the more you should look and live like a Christian. Not by some sort of work of your own hands, but rather the Spirit of God is always and ever drawing you to Christ, molding us and shaping us to be who we ought to be uh, positionally in Christ Jesus. And now here's what we come to. As we look at this, Paul is saying that you've got some lack and we want to make sure that you aren't lacking in these things any longer that you lack in, that you're continuously growing. Many of us live on a plateau as a Christian. Plateaus are a dangerous place. Either one, you're about to drop off, fall off, or quit. Right? You say, well, all of the Christian life cannot be mountain peaks. No, certainly. There's an awful lot of valleys in there as well. But many of us settle for just barely coasting along. Just letting, letting our Christian life just float along the river here. We're told and called to move forward. Now here in verse 9, we're going to see that Christian love is proof that we are living purely and is most natural. 
In this chapter thus far, we've dealt with this. It's been very preachy as Paul has been dealing with this because he's addressing in this chapter so much so the need of purity. He talks about the sanctification and talks so much about how they need to be pure sexually, how they need to uh, take care of their own bodies, uh, self-discipline of their own vessels, as well as their relationship with their wife to not abuse the other, to not abuse uh, others outside of their home and their marriage. We find the great need of holiness in the church, holiness in the life of the Christian. And where there is holiness, there will be a love for the brethren. Now notice this, when you are not living a holy life before the Lord, when you are not living righteously, when you're not in church, you start to quickly lose your love for church. And not just for going to church, but being a part of the church, the people of God. But the longer you're away from it, the more you miss it, the more you don't miss it as much. Now, here's what he gets at. He says, but as touching brother love, you need not that I write unto you. That's a good thing, right? He says, I don't have to write to you to tell you how to love because one, you're doing it. And two, God has already taught you this. Thomas writes, at conversion, believers become lifelong pupils as the Spirit bears inner witness to the love within the Christian family. No external stimulus is necessary. Mutual love among Christians is an inbred quality. Meaning this, the moment that you are saved, the moment that you have been changed by the love of God, the love of God should absolutely flow out of your life. There is a sad reality that today, and it seems since COVID that we've lost some love in the church of God. We have lost a love for one another. We lost a love for coming to church. We lost a love for being a part of the church. We lost a love for the people across the aisle. We lost a love for the people next to us. We've lost a love somewhere. And Jesus talks to a church at Ephesus in, one, in His first letter there in Revelation chapter number 2. And He says, you're doing alright. You've got a lot of good doctrine. You're, you're straight and narrow with your morals. However, you've lost your first love. And there is a danger to our Christianity today where we know doctrine, where we know right from wrong, and we have so individualized ourselves that we lose a love for the brethren. But here He commends them. He tells them, you're doing this well, because I don't have to even write you about write to you about this because the Lord has already taught you. The reason why many of us lack love is not because God has not taught us, it's because we have not been teachable. The problem is not God's lessons. The problem is not God uh, not revealing Himself or teaching us how to love Him and love one another. These are natural commands and these are natural for those who live and walk in the Spirit of God to obey. However, the reason why we lack obedience is because we lack faith and trust in the Word of God. It's because we lack a, a true love for God. It, unless we are loving the Lord as we ought to, we will never love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we ought to. Now hold your place here and turn backwards with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, in Jesus' final hours, He's about to walk with His disciples through the garden. And what, it, what many believe is that here in chapter 15, He's begun that walk in the garden. The garden uh, 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 there at Gethsemane, it is a place of pressing, but there, uh, on the way there, there's vineyards and things of this nature. So He's able to look around and to use these illustrations. No one could preach like Jesus could. Right? Jesus was a master illustrator, a master preacher, a master teacher, because He is the very Word and revelation of God Himself. But in John chapter 15, he begins and he tells his disciples, and he says, I'm the true vine, my father's a husband, every branch that beareth not fruit, 
He taketh away. He talks about abide in me and I in you. But as we get to verse 9 here is what I want to pick up. He's talking about preparing them for what is to come. He says what you're going to need is one, to abide in me. But as you abide in me, you're going to abide in one another. You're going to love one another. As we abide in the Lord and with the Lord, there is a natural love that comes for the Lord. Notice this. Did any of you ever get married the day you met your significant other? No? All right. Are you sure? How about the second day? Maybe the second date? Anybody? Some of you met. I was right. right. Let's go ahead. Let's get married. But here's the thing. Why didn't you? You say, well, I didn't love them yet. I liked them. Maybe liked, liked them. Thought they were nice. I thought he you know, wasn't as ugly as previous boyfriends or the other guys around, so it wasn't that bad, right? Maybe he's marriage material. But I couldn't marry him yet. Why couldn't you? There wasn't a love there. Well, wasn't there a love there yet? You weren't abiding with one another. You didn't have the time put in. And once you put in that time, once you put in that effort, once that bond was being made, then you find that love comes. Now these men that Jesus had discipled, they had spent time with one another, yet they still argued amongst themselves. They still fought amongst themselves, jockeying for position to see who could be in the top five of Jesus' favorites, to see who would even sit on Jesus' right-hand side in the kingdom. And Jesus says, As my Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Continue ye in my love. This is the idea that we stay in the love of God. We abide in the love of God. We continue in the love of God. That everything must be done out of the love of God. That He loves me, and in turn, therefore, we love Him. John would later write in 1 John that we love Him because He first loved us. He says, If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Notice this. You can do good Christian-y or church-y things without a love for the Lord. To do so is, is wickedness. It's, 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 it's dangerous. To do a Christian deed or a good deed or a church deed, to even be here this morning, sitting in Sunday school, getting ready to go into the worship hour without a love for God is a dangerous place to be. You see, if we keep His commandments, it ought to be done out of love and obedience, out of faith, not out of obligation. He says, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus did the will of the Father. Why? Because He loved the Father. He loved the Father. You and I ought to do the same. Why? Because we love the Lord. Verse number 11, He says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Notice that the Christian life is to be both loving and joyful. Where there is love, there is joy. The two go hand in hand. We should see this. However, here's what happens to us, and it should not. But the longer that we're saved, the longer that we're in church, the more accustomed we become to the love of God, and we cease to love Him as we once did. We no longer have the same joy that we once did. Why is that? Is it because we just, well, you know, that's the Christian life. You just can't always be happy. You just can't always be joyful. You just can't always be very loving. Hogwash. We ought to be loving. It's the Spirit of God that gives us the love of God and a love for God and a love for God's people. We ought to be joyful people. Why? Because what's more, the fruit of the Spirit is love than what? Joy. That's right. You think He put it there like that for a reason? 
And now here in 1 Thessalonians, what we see is that he's saying, I need not write to you about this because you love one another. In Jesus' last few teaching moments in the last hours with his disciples, he tells them, love, abide in my love. Let, let my joy be in you. Let my joy might be full. This is my commitment that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love his disciples? He served them. Jesus bent down and served them. Love is more than words. It is actions. It is sacrifice and action. You can love by declaring your love, but to demonstrate your love is a different thing. Now, we ought to both be declaring our love for the Lord and demonstrating it as well. And here's what often happens is that we go, we've got the crowd over here that is super emotional. We say, oh, how, oh, how I love Jesus, oh, how I love Jesus. And that's a great song, don't be wrong. And then we've got the others over here that say, well, you know, I just like to work real hard and do all these things. And so this one's trying to demonstrate and prove their love and try to earn God's love. And this one's trying to talk so much about how much they love God, but they never do anything about it. But here Jesus shows us we are to declare and demonstrate our love for God. And the only way to do so is to live and abide and walk in the Spirit. He says, Greater love hath no man than this than a man laid down his life for his friends. That's the love that Jesus had for his disciples. That's the love that he has for us. That's the love that we ought to have for one another. You say, well, I'm willing to lay down my life for my, my wife, my husband, my kids, grandkids, mom, dad, immediate family. Certainly, I lay down my life. Here's the idea of laying down your life. It's not dying for someone. It's living for someone. Jesus literally laid down His life, yes, at death on the cross. However, He laid down His life in the sense that He's the one that stooped to wash their feet. He's the one that stooped and cleaned them, washed them, served them. That's the idea here. He goes on and He says, <coughs> You, my friends, if you do whatsoever, I command you. See, we all say that we want to be a friend of Jesus, do we not? We know that He's our friend. A friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Why is that? It's because He loves us and has given His life for us and laid it down for us. Therefore, we ought to do the same for Him and one another. Now, coming back here to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, he says, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. Brotherly love here is the same where we get Philadelphia from, that idea of brotherly love. This is not one of just based off of emotions, but it is that a continual, we sacrifice one another, we love one another. It does not mean that it is a perfect love without spat or difference, but rather it means that I'm still able to love that person even despite of the spat, despite of the difference. Now, if there's any place that that is to be demonstrated, it is in the local church. There are different people from different walks of life. There are different points of view doctrinally even in this church and guess what you're to love them to love the brethren he says for ye yourselves are taught of god to love one another i cannot teach you to love god i can tell you about it i can tell you maybe about how but you must learn it from the lord himself i cannot teach you to love the brothers and sisters around you you must learn it of God. Now, it does not mean that I don't preach messages about it, because we did that. We looked all through 1 John. It was everywhere in there. However, what does it mean? It means that if you are not being taught of God Himself by His very Word, by His Spirit that now abides in you, then it does not matter what I've got to say. We need to be teachable. We need to be pliable. We need to be loving. 
verse number 10, he says, And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Now, the church is commended for their love expressed to others and exhorted to abound more in love here in verse 10. Sorensen writes, Referring to his injunction to abound in love in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul now revisits the matter, indicating to them that they need not to write further unto them. They already had been taught of God to love one another. They were to be complimented and that they did so toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. Macedonia was the region where, Thessalon- where was Thessalonica. Included in that region were the churches of Philippi, Berea, and perhaps others. The Thessalonian church had manifested a love for them. Nevertheless, he urged that they increase in the same more and more. Here's what he's getting at. To love the people who attend church goes much deeper than those who come to church. It is to those who are part of the church. Members of the body of Christ. A part of the bride of Christ. It is to love not just the global church, but there is a grave danger in making so much about the global church that we miss out on the local church. The local church is a small, livable, day-by-day extension of the global church. It is wide in its variety of people and even opinions and walks of life. This is why we find in times where Paul had to address issues in the local church, like in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we see that there's an issue between the rich and the poor, uh, all these different classes of people, but yet we find that they were a part of the same church. We need to love the local church. A Christian that does not love the local church does not love Christ. If you love Christ, you will love His church. You will love His body. You will love His bride. And as well, you will seek to operate your Christian life not on an island by yourself thinking that you're stronger or better off by yourself, but rather in submitting one another to the local church. Not to just some sort of pastor or preacher or teacher or church leadership, but to one another. That you belong to one another. We need to return to a love for the local church once more. Not merely attending church, but a love for the people themselves. A love for Christ's body. The Thessalonian church expressed and exampled the love of God for the church. They had given. They had expressed their love They sacrificed for churches around them. They did not have the mentality of today that we were in competition with one another. The men that I pray for every Sunday morning, and I've got a wide variety of men, Michigan, Missouri, Virginia, North Carolina, some right down the road, some 10-hour drives away, and I know that they pray for me too. You know how I know? Because they tell me. So I'm at least figuring that they, they at least said it. I don't know. But I pray for them. You know why? Because I love the local church there as well. They are accomplishing things in places that I'll never get to go. They're reaching people that I'll never see, never hear of. Christ cares about those churches as much as He does this one. And the fact is, my my friend John Tilly up the road, my friend Patrick up the road, my friend Howard up the road, and many others, I'm not in competition. I'm rooting for them. 
And we ought to. You might have other churches that you know. Those are the ones that I know. Those are the ones that I've become friends with. Nevertheless, we ought to root for them and love them and challenge them and help them, hurt for them when they're hurting, rejoice with them when they're rejoicing. Never to the place where we go, oh, you know, where they're growing faster than us or they're doing this or, you know, they got five people saved last week and, you know, we, we haven't gotten five people saved this year. Praise God, anybody got saved, right? We've gotten so much into building up our own kingdom that we have forgotten about the kingdom of God. And here they had proved their love. They loved others in their area. They loved the church. They demonstrated it. Love proves the work of God, obedience to God, and brings unity to the people of God. You won't have unity in a church where there is no love. As a matter of fact, you can mark it down. Where there is a, where there is a united church, there will be a love for the church and for one another. But you can mark down the opposite as well. Where there is a church that is divided, even going through times of splits, you can mark that down. There is no love there. Not just for one another. It's deeper than that. They've lost the love for the Lord. Because if you love the Lord, you're going to love the church. You're going to love those a part of it. Even the ones that grate your nerves, that aggravate you, that rub you wrong, that don't dress like you want, that don't sing like you want, that don't even have every preference down that you like or want, even disagreeing on some second and third issues. Is that alright? It should be. Here's what we find. If we really love Christ, we will really love the church. We're going to be willing to sacrifice for the church. We'll make sacrifices to do an awful lot in this world, won't we? We'll make sacrifices to go to the lake, to go to the ball game. We'll make sacrifices to keep our children and grandchildren so busy in the world that they don't even have time to do their homework at home after school. What will we sacrifice for the local church? What will we sacrifice for the Lord Himself? And here's the thing. It's not so much of just the things in our life that we ought to sacrifice for the Lord. He's looking for us to be the living sacrifice. To give Him all of our life because all of our life belongs to Him in the first place. The church is His. The people are His. The ministries are His. It's His work. It's His Word. It's His people. Therefore, we should be joyful to be able to be a part of it. Now, as we look in the context of this passage, He's dealt so much with purity. Why? He's writing to a church. The church is called the body of Christ. Should our bodies be pure? Certainly. Now, he talks about this literally from sexual perversion and a multitude of other sins. It ought to be pure. But let's think about this. If you catch a virus, is your body pure? No. Something's wrong, right? You get sickly, you get weak, you get the sniffles, snot, fever, runny nose, all that stuff, right? You're taking medicine, you need prescriptions to get better. You're looking to feel better. You're looking to get better, but you're not pure in that moment, right? There's some other junk in there. and It's coming out and it's green. It's yellow. It's not pure, is it? It's not good. Let's think about this. What else is the church referred to? The body of Christ? How about this? The bride of Christ. You know, there's a reason why everybody stands for the bride, not the groom. I don't know exactly why, but that's what we do, right? 
Yesterday, at the wedding, wonderful. We stood for the bride. And you know what she came walking in? Purple dress, pink polka dots, red sneakers. No, of course not. What did she wear? She wore a white dress. A white veil to express purity. Because marriage is to be a picture of our purity with Christ. And the purity of Christ. The purity of His body. The purity of His bride. You and I should care about the purity of the church. But here's the thing. A church will only be as pure as its members are. A church will only be as pure as its pastor is. We need our hearts to be pure before God if we wish to have a pure church. And what the world needs today more than anything is a pure church, not a watered-down and worldly church. Not a halfway-in, halfway-out church, but a pure church, a pure body, a pure bride. The days of the church being sickly should be over. We've been sick long enough. The days of the church being impure with the sinfulness of the world, those days should be long gone. The whole point of revival and being revived and even coming on a Sunday morning is to make sure that we are pure in our hearts, pure before God, pure in this community so that we might reach this community. We are to be different. And the whole chapter thus far has been exactly that. Impure living will lead to an impure love. The more we live without holiness in our life, the more we will live without unity in the church. The more we depart from personal holiness, the more we will see a lack of love in the church. Now, holiness does not just look like covering up those outward sins and not doing those things. That's moralism. Lost people can do that. It is having our hearts cleansed by the Word and Spirit of God. Green writes, here in 10, he says, We beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. The call is the same as found in chapter 4, verse 1, where the apostle urged him to abound, to overflow, to an even greater degree in that conduct which pleased God. The founder of the church exhorts them to abound ever more greatly in their love, which is both mutual and extensive. The apostle had every confidence that this church would respond positively to the exhortation. He increased more and more. Are you satisfied with the way that you love the church? Are you satisfied with the unity of the church? Are you satisfied with the purity of the church? Are you satisfied with the love in your home, the faithfulness of your heart, the faithfulness of your family? Are you satisfied with such? We ought to have the desire that Paul gives the exhortation of these people to abound, to increase, to overflow more and more. And the idea is that it continues going more and more and more. If you've reached that point in your life where you say, well, I think I'm being Christian enough, you've got an awful lot of Christ to learn. We need to abound in the love of God and the purity of God more and more.
Today, I know we're not going to get into that next section. That's okay. I don't want to start it, not even to finish it. But he's going to end off by getting real personal, by dealing with these personal things. And what we found is that he's talking to the church as a whole, but the church goes as the individual goes. This shows the relationship that the individual needs the church, the church needs the individual. Because if you take the individuals out of the church, well, there is no church. But if you leave the individuals to themselves, there is no church. We need togetherness and purity and in love and faithful obedience to the Lord that we would abound and increase more and more, not for our name or our glory, but for His name and for His glory. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this day. And God, we want to thank You for Your Word. We ask, Lord, Lord, that You would allow us to increase more and more in a love and a purity for You. We pray, O God, that even this morning before we come before You to worship You in spirit and in truth, God, that You would cleanse our hearts and our minds. God, that You would uh, allow us just to seek You. And Lord, that You would uh, just bind us together, Lord. Knit our hearts together, Lord. Give us the unity of Your Spirit, Lord. Give us Your power and Your presence today, God. Move amongst us. And Lord, if there's one who does not know You as Lord and Savior today, God, O Lord, save them, please. We do pray, God, that You would hear our prayers, that You would strengthen us, encourage us, and Lord, that You'd be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right.